1: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Patrick Scahill. When was the last time you baked something, say a batch of cookies? Your recipe likely called for baking powder or baking soda. Those leavening agents are basically bubble makers that help rise crepes into cakes. But these options weren't always kitchen staples. When baking powder was finally discovered in the 19th century, there was an epic industry showdown over the rights to produce it, and Connecticut was a key player. Later this hour, we'll hear from Darien first selectman Monica McNally to discuss the town's $85 million purchase of Great Island. That 63-acre property has a long link to a baking powder tycoon, William Ziegler. To help us dig deeper into this history today, we are welcoming Linda Civitello. She's a food historian and the author of Baking Powder Wars, the cutthroat food fight that revolutionized cooking. History buffs, bakers, share your favorite recipe. Have you ever tried to bake without baking powder? How'd that go? You can join the conversation, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Linda, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Hello, Patrick, and hello, Connecticut.
1: Yeah, it's great to speak with you. So let's uh, let's start really basic. What is baking powder, and how's it different from baking soda?
2: Baking powder is a combination of three ingredients, one of which is baking soda. And it's a mineral, baking soda, and they all leaven. But baking powder has a second ingredient in it. Baking soda reacts with liquid. Anybody who's done a third grade science project knows what (laughs) happens, right? It's a volcano. Um, (laughs) The second part of baking powder is an acid that reacts with heat. And that's what keeps us glued to the oven window when we see that rise. And we're like, oh, look, it's so pretty. It's all puffing up. And the third ingredient is cornstarch, which is a buffer to keep them from combining in the can uh, or and also to wick away moisture. So that's it. It's simple. It sounds simple, but finding it wasn't. And uh, it's a huge saga in one of the in most amazing business wars right up there with Coke, Pepsi. Chevy Ford and Rockefeller in the 19th century in the Gilded Age.
1: And so this is a war that's essentially kind of boiling down to uh, maybe boiling's not the best thing to say when we're talking <laughs> about baking but uh, it, how to make bubbles essentially right how to produce co2 to make make uh, uh, something rise when it's being baked. Um, I guess let's turn back the clock a little bit. Let's go to colonial America let's let's talk about bread. Uh, bread was was a big big thing back then so um, uh, speak to that.
2: Bread was a staple. It wasn't like now, if you go somewhere and they say, would you like some bread with that? In the 19th century, it was, do we have anything to go with the bread? So bread was at least a pound per person per day. So you were baking in batches, 20, 30 pounds at a time. And recipes say, put the flour in your trough. I mean, you had a huge <laughs> thing. You didn't have a little bowl. You had this giant trough. Um, and we see in the French Revolution with bread, the professional bakers were making it in such quantities they needed it with their feet. You couldn't do it with your hands. You just They just jumped up and down on it. But no, American women used their hands. Okay. Um, the big difference here is that the standard of living was higher in America. Families had their own ovens. In Europe, with this tradition from, we got to go back to the Middle Ages, you had the lord of the manor, he had to grill, he ground the, the grain, and he had the oven, and you had to use his oven, and that progressed into professional bakers. So people in Europe were used to buying bread from a professional baker, the guilds were all male. You come to the United States, you've got an oven in your house, you don't have professional bakers. so. You have got to make your own bread. The housewives, housewives made their own bread, and they had to make yeast. Okay, so yeast—the way you get bubbles, the way you get air into things. So yeast is a living organism. You had ten thousand things that could go wrong with yeast. Yeast is a prima donna. Yeast is, oh, it's too hot. Oh, I'm cold. Oh, I just—you know—I need some more time. And housewives are like, also, oh, how do you keep other organisms from the air bacteria things out of the yeast once you create it and it was just a big slurry because you see recipes that call for oh a pint of yeast um it's it's very difficult to maintain so you had a lot of bread failures and bread was connected to religion Mm -hmm. so this was viewed i mean a woman's identity was connected to bread baking and if you failed at this it's like you were a failure as a woman, as a wife, as a mother. You're not feeding your family. We don't have bread for the sacrament. And in places like Connecticut, this was difficult because wheat did not grow well here, at least not the kinds of wheat they had then.
1: And so, yeah, I mean, it becomes in many ways, it's its its sort of science means morality here, right? We have this prima donna yeast, which is very difficult to maintain. It's tricky to get. It's tricky to keep. Um, so women are thinking, uh, women primarily being the people who were baking back then in colonial America, thinking, how do I get rid of this? How do I make this a little bit easier while also dealing with this simultaneous moral pressure from the pulpit, which says, hey, if you're not baking bread and doing a good job, you're not basically you know, doing what you need to do uh, as a person, right?
2: As a woman, right. Sylvester Graham, especially, because you had the religious awakenings coming out of the connecticut river valley up you know springfield Mm -hmm. and hartford up there and and amherst especially and yes you know the medical profession is oh you must make good bread and the everyone is all, all over women and sylvester graham says it is the mother only who can make bread for her family so women are please i gotta find a shortcut to this and they are looking at everything. Just they, at one point, they try smelling salts. <laughs> and I, I think it's got to be because, well, okay, you fell down and this got you up. Maybe it can get the bread up. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, how often? Well, I mean, I don't know. The equivalent now is not the same. Where we had these um, TikTok challenges, go put Nyquil in food or something, which you know are terrible. It's a bad idea. But going to your medicine cabinet and modern yeast, I, I just want to say modern yeast is very different mm-hmm. from the mm-hmm. yeast they had then. Also, women were the brewers. Mm-hmm. We did not have professional breweries. So women made beer. They made beer out of everything. They made wintergreen beer and they made you know, herbal beer. They made all kinds of beer and they would use what they called the enthines, the enthines, the dregs from this as yeast to make yeast or to leaven things. Mm-hmm. So that was it. The only other way you could get air and people still do this into bread or cake is beat the eggs. And some of the recipes say beat the eggs to a raging foam. Mm-hmm. And it says beat the eggs for an hour, have a man servant do this. And I'm like, Oh, I'm fresh out of man servants today. So as many women are so, that's it. You had this yeast that was variable and fickle. You had eggs which were incredibly time consuming to make sponge cake or sponge and that was kind of it. And then they just started experimenting mm. and what they came up with was ashes.
1: Yeah, so I want to ask you about that. I mean, <laughs> at a certain point it seems like, you know, as you're saying, uh Let's find anything that worked. Anything that can make these bubbles a little bit better and, and a little bit more efficiently. Uh, Amelia Simmons, uh, who I believe wrote the first American cookbook, American Cookery, um, which was published actually out of Hartford in, in 1796. Um, this book includes a, a lot of recipes for cakes too, which we'll talk about briefly. But um, it mentions the use of, of uh, I think it's peril, pearl. Pearl, pearl ash or pearl ash, pearl ash, um, pearl ash. One of the many replacements, right, that that folks were seeking at this time.
2: This is the one that works, this one, and it's vegetable matter or, you know, herbal matter burned down, and then potash is what you get, and when you further refine it, it's pearl ash. What it is, when you mix ashes with water, you get lye, lye, and that was used like in Norwegian lutefisk, and you see recipes from ancient Rome using lye as you know, preservative or, you know, to process olives. But these women are using this for baking. So I think what you've got here is a historian. I go back and it's like I fall in love with these people. You fall in love with the people you're researching. It's like you can imagine this woman standing in her kitchen so frustrated and trying to find something, but the nerve it takes to try these new things. Um, So pearl ash is in the first recipes for cake cake is america's gift to the world okay do you want to talk about cake now i I would love to talk
1: about america's gift to the world and you're welcome (laughs) by the way
2: okay early things that were called cake in these early cookbooks are not cake they're tricked out bread Mm -hmm. they're like panettone or stolen because your daily bread is four ingredients. It is flour, water, yeast, and salt. For special occasions, you are going to add butter, sugar, eggs, alcohol. The election cake calls for massive amounts of alcohol and (laughs) quarts and quarts of flour. So, and you might add spices and nuts and fruit. So, what you've got is a yeast risen. Cake, yeast risen bread, but with all of these added ingredients. And what we get from American women and what we get from Amelia Simmons in Connecticut in 1796 is the first use of this artificial leavener that is a total radical break from yeast. And gingerbread, she's got seven recipes for gingerbread. Most of them are for what we call ginger cookies, gingerbread people. And this is a confusion because gingerbread always meant the little gingerbread crisp, crisp people. And Amelia Simmons has a recipe that is so unusual. She gives it the title, soft gingerbread baked in pans. That's the name (laughs) of the food. And this is where we get our modern gingerbread, which is really a ginger cake. And also the first recipe for the word and the word cookie which is the dutch diminutive of cake and she uses pearl ash in these this caused a revolution when it got to england because british women would love a solution too and it just immediately kind of went viral the equivalent of going viral
1: so listeners can check out an excerpt from the chapter uh, from the book uh, uh, called The Liberation of Cake. That's on our website, ctpublic.org uh, slash where we live. Uh, so one more question here before we um, uh, uh, break, uh, Linda. So as you're you know discussing, uh, these new chemical leaveners are out there. They're making cake, uh, I guess, cheap, quick, a little bit easier to bake, Um uh, pearl ash is one of them. Uh, I guess, uh, let's hop, skip, and jump through history a little bit here. A lot of experimentation happens. Um, take us to to baking powder, and I know it, we're going to sort of spring into separate paths from there because there's lots of different types of it, um, but uh, bring us from pearl ash to baking powder. How do we get there?
2: Well, pearl ash had a big drawback, which is in some of the other things they tried, which were if, if you, if they spilled on the floor, the cookbooks say. Don't let it stay there for any length of time because it will strip the paint off the floorboards. So um, that's a drawback. Yeah. Yeah. They're still (laughs) looking for something else. It was a professor of chemistry at Harvard who patented the first baking powder recipe. And he said he wanted to do it to put additives back into cake because by then flour had already become so refined that he wanted to add it in nutrition back in, and his formula used a calcium-based um, thing. It was actually based on bones. But mm-hmm. it, he was the one who came up with cornstarch. And now we go, it's like cornstarch? Like, okay, yeah, that's like a big invention. It was. It was in the 1840s and 1850s. It was brand-new technology, cornstarch, new technology coming soon to you. So he had the baking soda, which – By 1844, we get Armand Hammer, still baking soda. He came up with cornstarch. His name was Horsford, and he patented this, and he added an acid. So that's the basic, basic baking powder formula, 1856. And then the Civil War intervenes, and after the Civil War is when the baking powder war really takes off.
1: And so we're going to get into that uh, war uh, of uh, food and baking powder after the break here. Uh, Food historian Linda Civitello, stay with us. Uh, After this, we will uh, be back. Uh, History buffs, bakers, we want to hear from you. Uh, Have you ever tried uh, either on purpose or not, I guess, to make a baking powder free recipe? I know I've tried uh, not on purpose and it's not gone well. Let us know how that went. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on-the-go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Patrick Scahill. This hour, we're going back in time to explore the once booming baking powder industry in Connecticut. Our guide this hour is Linda Civitello, a food historian and the author of Baking Powder Wars, The Cutthroat Food Fight That Revolutionized Cooking. Uh, so Linda, let's get back into it here. Uh, the baking powder wars are about to break out. We've, we've sort of uh, established uh, for the break here what baking powder uh, is, and it was a long road to get there. Today, we don't really think about it, right? We just sort of grab it out of our cupboard and put it in whatever we're making, um, mm-hmm. but uh, how did this basically erupt into a food fight here uh, in, in America?
2: Well, first of all, baking powder is the opposite of yeast. Yeast is fickle, and baking powder just says, you know, hot, cold, wet, dry, I don't care. You know, I am not temperature sensitive. I am not, you know, weather, climate sensitive. Just let me add it. So there is money to be made here because housewives go wild for this. The early an early way that they made their own baking powder in the home was cream of tartar, which is a byproduct of winemaking, and baking soda. And you might still, if you pull up old, old recipes now, you have old recipes, and you're going, oh, well, I have baking soda, but cream of tartar. That's just a prototype of baking powder. And a it was a weaker prototype. So in the 1860s, William Ziegler, who was in Indiana at the time, Uh, Well, there was a pharmacy in Indiana. Anyway, in New York, they moved to New York because that's where business is happening. William Ziegler's a salesman, and he becomes then the head of Royal Baking Powder. And he also has a place uh, later on in Greenwich, which you'll be talking more about later, I think, Patrick. Mm -hmm. Um, And he decides, Royal Baking Powder decides that they are going to knock all of the competition out. Through advertising, so they send someone to the library, and what they come up with is all the other baking powders of poison. And you could say this at the time, right? You had all kinds of medicines that were advertising that they cured cancer and headaches and whatever. And you know they were like twenty five percent alcohol. Right,
1: and, and I mean, and, and and you know, worth noting at the time, right? There's no there's no regulatory oversight for this, so I can I can kind of publish and say anything I want, right?
2: Right, right, no no whatever <laughs> nothing at all. So this becomes the war and we see headlines in papers saying, is your baking powder killing you? Is it malaria or is it baking powder And people are getting scared so and these are above the fold because Royal had contracts with five mm. to six thousand newspapers and we see massive numbers of newspapers in the United States then and they printed this, as royal paid them to print these above the fold as straight news and they also had contracts with newspapers that said no one can print a rebuttal so even if you named people who were supposedly injured by your competitor's baking powder didn't matter because they would write in, and the doctors would write in and say this just didn't happen. Nobody got hurt. And it's like we can't publish it.
1: Yeah, and, and so the backdrop here again, you had mentioned uh, cream of, of tartar. So this is um, uh, something that can be used as one ingredient in in baking powder, correct? But it's it's in some ways it's uh, it's more I guess it's more expensive than some of the alternatives that were out there at the time. It's also just not really as good, right? So it's it's sort of like Royal was thinking. Okay, you know we're we're sort of in this hole with this product how do how do we kind of claw our way out of it and then they they start to look at newspapers um and they look elsewhere as well
2: yes well they had the market they had the biggest market share in the beginning and as it started to dwindle as competition came in including one that had an ingredient called it was sodium aluminum sulfate which they called alum and they so they went after the alum people and what they finally did what royal did was In 1899, they bribed the Missouri State Legislature to pass a law making all other baking powders illegal in the state of Missouri, and that stayed on the books until 1905. Um,
1: How how did you react when you sort of saw that? I mean, I think today, you know, uh, I I know, so I'm kind of a history geek, and uh, I'm I'm not often surprised by weird things that I read in in history books when it comes to the history of business, but. this one was sort of surprising to me. And I don't know if it's just because it is such a regular part of our uh, lives in the kitchen now, it's just a product on a shelf and it's there. Um, But I mean, were you kind of surprised when you saw that? I mean, they were bribing the Missouri legislature and people were going to jail over this, like grocers were going to jail if they were putting the wrong type of stuff on the shelf, right?
2: Yes. I mean, yes, it all surprised me. I thought this was, this started out being like a couple of paragraphs in a book I was going to write about the history of breakfast. And I thought, let me start with something simple. You know, there would be a couple of paragraphs like, you know, 10,000 pages later, um, Supreme Court cases, every state health department cases. It was stunning. It was so naked. And this is how naked business and bribery were. Let's remember that at the end of the 19th century, business controlled time in the United States. It was the railroads that set time zones in the United States, not Congress. The railroads controlled time. So business is huge. And Royal Baking Powder is capitalized at $20 million. For example, um, Ford Motor Company at about the same time, $150,000. So they have massive amounts of money and they go in and they are distributing $1,000 bills. Then the Missouri State Senate, they're flashing them around in saloons, going to change for a thousand, you know, um, and. The Missouri legislature was already controlled, the Senate, the Missouri State Senate was controlled by a lobbyist for the railroads. He was sitting behind a curtain. He wasn't out in the lobby going, oh, please vote for my bill. He was behind a curtain in a chair like a throne, and he had runners who would go out to the the floor of the Missouri Senate with little pieces of paper telling the senators that he had bought and paid for how to vote. And I think that's where the Wizard of Oz comes from. but, <laughs> um, yeah, and then we get the muckraking press comes in and they said, "This is corruption when businesses contribute money to political campaigns, this is wholesale bribery and bribery is treason. And the article that Lincoln Steffens, the premier muckraker in the United States, wrote about this, Called "Business Is Treason," enemies of the republic was about baking powder and Ziegler.
1: How was how the public reacting at this time? I mean, obviously they're they're going to be looking for the cheapest thing anyway and the most efficient thing uh, when they're when they're making their food. But how are they reacting, or were they aware of this war that was going on uh, in legislatures and among high level officials in, uh, in in the areas where they lived?
2: Yes, baking powder was front page news at the time. It was everywhere, and everybody was aware of it and. But you see the people in Missouri going, why do we have to pay for this high price trust baking powder? Why? And you've got hearings in Congress going on because the pure food and drug law is coming up. And the baking powder war was so intense, it almost prevented passage of this. So people are crazy over this. And the Missouri House of Representatives keeps passing bills to repeal, law to repeal the baking powder. Law and the Senate is bribed and overrides just repeatedly. So these poor people in Missouri have no recourse. And this is what happens with bribery. And finally, Ziegler gets indicted. Missouri sends their state state attorney general to New York because William Ziegler's Ziegler's primary residence was there. Um, And the governor of New York refuses to extradite him. This is very unusual, very unusual. Governors usually respond, you know, the affirmative. Um, But this is businesses having what Stephens calls a license to loot. And it's also one of the reasons this bribery, because it was so public, is one of the reasons that we shortly after this got a constitutional amendment saying that state legislatures and state senates could not elect national senators anymore, that the people were going to do that.
1: You had mentioned earlier, you know, some of the um, I guess ideological wars that were playing out in in, in newspaper advertisements, particularly and um, a lot of the scare tactics that were there. Um, were those hitting home with people? I mean, was that, was that registering in a way with people where they actually kind of believed that at the time, that, you know, baking powder mixed with a certain ingredient could be causing bad health effects or um, is that just You know, uh, kind of standard noise of the day for consumers of that time.
2: They did. And then the alum baking powders countered that, you know, Royals formula caused kidney disease. I mean, there was so much floating around and every federal agency got involved. So did the home economists. The Home Economics Association was founded in 1899 in Lake Placid. Um, So women, yeah, this. Very involved. The problem in the cookbooks is you need twice as much of royal as the other baking powders. So, if some of you out there are have old recipes or old family recipes or clippings and you get this fail, what happens when you put too much baking powder in something like a muffin is it will rise up and then it will crust and fall over and it looks like a little elf hat. You know, it's got this little bump on the top Mm -hmm. and it tastes bad. So that's it. There is chaos in the cookbooks here. Women are fighting over this and they don't know what to do. And then, you know, congressional hearings. And then finally, um, this is where double acting comes from. People always go, what is double acting baking powder? This was at, whoops, advertising by Calumet baking powder to say, this once in the bowl, the baking soda with the liquid, and then in the oven, and Royal was a single-acting baking powder, and they couldn't counter that. So and- that was the beginning of the fall.
1: Yeah, and I, so I was going to ask you to sort of take us there next. So I, I was, I was curious, um, uh, wh- kind of, I guess, what happened in Missouri first of all. Like, let's button that up. So uh, I'm, I'm assuming at some point these laws were repealed.
2: 1905. It was finally repealed. Uh, people were there were trials nobody was found guilty from this so you know we kind of back where we started except people were more aware of what was going on and like i said it affected the the nation in strange ways so um the next big part of the war was the price war and this is where a yale graduate really comes to the fore and a company that wasn't even kind of considered a player, which was Claver Girl, based in Indiana. We've got a guy named Tony Homan. He comes to Yale. He's a phenomenal athlete. He's track and field. He wins like 10 medals or so in his freshman year. He's on the undefeated Bulldogs, the legendary 1923 and 24 Yale football team. He is voted best all-around athlete at Yale. And then he goes back to Indiana, and here comes the Depression, And he's like, I just have this little business and I'm going to lose it. And I don't know if what he learned on the playing fields of Yale made a difference, but he just took on everybody else in the country. And these were companies like Royal had been in existence since the 1860s and Rumford. And since the 1850s, they had distribution networks, they had warehouses, they had salespeople all over the country. And Tony Holman's got six trucks. Yeah, I got six trucks and I'm going to just blow everybody else out of the water. And he did. In 1931, he started. And by 1935, he had the majority of the market in the United States. The baking powder market It is one of the most phenomenal things in business ever.
1: Uh, and so Clabber Girl today, I mean, I think they're still one of the main baking, baking powder companies that are out there, correct?
2: Yes. And at one point, they had more than 50% of the market and um they recently were sold they were family owned until recently and it's claver Girl money in indiana that is behind the indy 500 the indianapolis 500 is made possible by baking powder money oh.
1: so were there any lessons you think the nation kind of learned from from this uh, this really really big uh, food fight? I mean, were there national agencies that were formed out of this? I think in some ways it, it seems like the national press might have might have learned a thing or two from this. This was you know an issue obviously that was covered by journalists everywhere in the country, and it was an issue that was affecting everyone in the country. Um, but what were some of the lessons that the country learned from uh, this this baking powder war? I
2: think at the end, it's you know, price was the factor. And I just want to mention another, one other Connecticut connection because all roads seem to lead to Connecticut somehow. In Indiana, where Tony Holman's Claver Girl business was, that in 1924, a hundred years ago, the Ku Klux Klan swept the state from the governorship to the mayors of Indianapolis and other major cities, courts, boards of education, And they came after Tony's family was German Catholic immigrants. And I was stunned when I read that the major organization in the United States that was speaking up for immigrants, for Catholics, and for Jews and for Blacks at this time was the Knights of Columbus. Founded in New Haven in 1882, they published a book by W.E.B. Du Bois, The Gift of Black Folk about black contributions in 1924 in response to this. And the worst thing, if you were in the Klan, the worst thing you could say about somebody was, oh, he's in the Knights of Columbus.
1: What was your research process like for this book?
2: (laughs) Fly all over the country, go through papers that were written in 19th century handwriting. the Rhode Island Historical Institute, the Institute of Baking in Kansas City, uh, Indiana, uh, just re- researching old recipes, trying to make some of these things, seeing what happened when you <laughs> used one kind of baking powder and another kind of baking powders, um, you know, recipe. So just um, took a long time
1: Took. Yeah, I mean, I guess I ask from the standpoint of when I think of recipes and, and my family's history of recipes, it's it's something written down on an index card 50 years ago that my mom might be able to dig out from the cabinet, right? Like, like how well preserved is the record of just what people were doing, particularly when we look back to you know colonial America? Um, was this stuff uh, written down or was it more passed by oral tradition?
2: Oh, that's an excellent point because. Recipes, everybody goes, oh, those are old recipes. They don't have amounts. They don't have things. You know, they're so vague. They were not. The women who wrote these books for publication were crystal clear and everything was by weight. It was all, you know, pounds of this, pound of that. That's where you get pound cake, a pound of this, pound of that. But then Americans started moving across the country. And you're not going to take a big old scale on a covered wagon, but everybody's (laughs) everybody's got a cup and a spoon except the problem there is those cups and those spoons are not identical so again huge variation but um for example there's a cookbook published in 1836 in new haven that has a recipe that i tried that i didn't even need to adjust Mm -hmm. i mean it was and it's it makes a tremendous it makes a delicious cookie and it's a called a spice snap and it's got five spices not just ginger and you know, so some of these are just wonderful. You see how modern some of them are. And then we see this process of of change until finally we don't get consistency in the cookbooks until the 1970s. And it's just recently that something like The Joy of Cooking has dropped the use of the words double acting. But baking powder is the reason that the phrase Flat as a pancake has no meaning for Americans.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I, I guess just quickly talk about that. So I had pancakes this weekend with my with my son, and I hadn't really thought about the, the fact that they were fluffy was uh, in large part because uh, baking powder is in there. Um, I don't know, Linda, if you've tried to make pancakes without baking powder, but they're generally uh, you know disappointing. They're I a crepe.
2: <laughs> it, it's a crepe. Yeah. you know, which means crisp in French. It's flat, and that has its own use. Um, but baking powder, you can make pancakes without eggs. Just beef up the baking powder. And that's what happened. We saw this during World War One when you know recipes, things were rationed. It's like just bump up your baking powder. Um, but America's bread is baking powder biscuits. That's America's little black dress of food. You can dress that up, you can dress it down. If you just drop it, it's more rustic looking and if you roll it a little and cut it out, you can make squares out of it, you can make round out of it, you can cut it in half, make sliders, you can go sweet with it, you can go savory. So baking powder biscuit right there in the name and cake, cake as we know it. If you look at Panettone and you look at chocolate cake, it's like these are related this is what America did with baking powder. And, and that happened so fast that by the 1840s, we're seeing cookbooks and saying, and certainly after in the Gilded Age, the 1870s and 80s, young women, you need to watch this. Everybody's eating cake everywhere all the time. So um, that's, that's us. We invented that.
1: Yeah, I think uh, we had mentioned Amelia Simmons uh, in in the last segment, uh, the woman who wrote the first American cookbook, uh, American Cookery, which was published in Hartford. And and I think the headline on that is just cake, right on the on the front. With I don't know if there's an exclamation point or whatever, but it's it's there, it's present. And this is 1796 that America's already kind of you know pivoting in this direction.
2: Right, right. It's that's the big selling point. Um, you know, in smaller print, she saw, talks about fish and poultry and meat. But yeah, right there in the middle of the cage, sorry, in the middle of the page, cakes, cakes from the imperial plum to plain cake. So, and that's what she does. So plain cakes and then massive cakes. The, The biggest cake, the most important one is called independence cake. And that is a precursor of raisin bread. It's got raisins, it's got cinnamon, it's got spices in it. And it's dressed with gold leaf and it's frosted. And then you put greenery around it and you can see this is the masterpiece. And here here is us. Here is America on the page in independence cake and election cake. These are the things that define us in a representative democracy. So anything that's in the food is in the culture and it's in cake
1: one one thing that I sort of gathered from your your book, uh, Linda, about baking powder was that this really is, in many ways, it's sort of the the quintessential um, American culinary thing, right? I mean, it's it's it has a big uh, history that's tied up with you know individualism and people you know baking in their own home, uh, American uh, desire for efficiency and getting things done quickly. And then of course, there's all the the economics that were at play here too. But I mean, I guess just as we think of like you know what what food really is the the quintessential American thing, Baking powder granted is an ingredient, not a food, but it seems like it's right up there. It ranks right up there on the list.
2: Birthday cake is an American invention. Happy birthday to you is an American invention. And we see these things spreading around the world because in Europe, with Catholic countries, you did not celebrate your own birthday, you celebrated your saints day. And then China with its one child policy started to focus more on children. So. Happy Birthday to You, invented around 1900, in the late 1890s, and that is the most recognized song in the world. And birthday cakes, sprinkles, the whole name of a cupcake. This is another American thing. We like personal food. A cupcake is a personal cake, a roll, a baking powder biscuit. That's your personal food. So cake, biscuits, pancakes, waffles, Before, if you wanted pancakes for breakfast or waffles, you had to make sure you had yeast. And if you didn't, you had to make yeast before you could have breakfast. So the burden on women was tremendous, absolutely tremendous. And, you know, guess baking powder here. Here it comes. Mm. Foolproof and inexpensive and on our tables, in our kitchens.
1: So coming up, we're going to be hearing uh, from a first selectman uh, Monica McNally to discuss uh, their town's purchase of an $85 million uh, property called Great Island. This was the former home of baking baking powder magnate uh, William Ziegler. Uh, Linda, I know you mentioned uh, William Ziegler and his connection to uh, the Royal Baking Company uh, earlier. Um, Anything else you wanted to mention about him here in about the minute that we have left just before we get to that next segment?
2: well the Ziegler family has been major donators and supporters of uh, the blind community and vision because William Ziegler's wife had a child from a previous marriage who was blind and she was friends with Helen Keller so the Ziegler Foundation for the blind has been very important and they endowed a chair at the Yale School of Medicine to um, for vision for vision studies so, very important in the state of Connecticut and very philanthropic.
1: Uh, that's Linda Civitello, food historian and the author of Baking Powder Wars, the cutthroat food fight that uh, revolutionized cooking. Uh, Linda, I'd love it if you'd stay with us, um, but I want to say thanks in advance uh, for you uh, taking the time to uh, to join us today.
2: Thank you. Uh,
1: Thank after you. a break, Darien First Selectman Monica, Monica McNally is going to join us. You can also join us if you want. Find us online at where we live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Patrick Scahill. The coastal town of Darien recently purchased Great Island for $85 million, gaining 63 acres and more than a mile of coastline. Here to discuss is Mona, Monica McNally. She's Darien's first selectman. Monica, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, Patrick. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on
1: today. Um, so, tell us a bit about this purchase. So, Great Island went up for sale in uh, 2017, is my understanding, um, but the price dropped a little bit over time. Um, why was uh, Darian interested in purchasing this property?
0: Um, well, the the price was initially back in two thousand and eighteen. It was um, one hundred and seventy five million dollars, but the property lines were redrawn in twenty twenty one, and that um, indicated a, a, you know a readjustment of the price. So the town pursued it. This is the last parcel of this size available in our town. And it is a really unique and beautiful place, Um, really special for Long Island Sound. So, um, you know, when we took a look at it, just the, the wildlife there, the views, the buildings, just models from a different era it was um it was something that we really needed to to take a really hard look at and our, our pl- we have a plan of conservation and development which is kind of a blueprint for our town and we do this every 10 years and um identifying um, acquiring open space is is a is a, uh, a very high priority and conservation of this of this really fragile environment was important to us as well
1: um, I'm, I'm assuming you've probably been out there. Uh, what, what do you see when you're there? What, what, what's, uh, what's on the island?
0: So, you know, it's about, it's 60 acres plus or minus a quarter acres, so we'll call it 60 acres. And when you enter it, um, you'll see there are, um, there are a couple of, um, parcels on either side, um, that are deeded open space conservation oriented. So then once you get on the island itself. Um, there are several buildings, there is um, the, the main house, which you can kind of see from the water, it's, it's very large. It's a 13,000 square foot, 10 bedroom, uh, eight bathroom, two half bathroom, really, really large home with two villas on either side that are, um, you know, um, complete homes and of themselves. There's also a really large um, stable, it's an 18 stall stable that was built um, in 1905, I believe, um, granite and slate roof, uh, designed by the same architect who did Grand Central Station. So when you're in Grand Central, if you look up at the ceiling, uh, Gustafino, Rafael Gustafino designed that, and he was the architect for um, the stables on Great Island. And then there are a number of homes that are um, more, not not modern, but um, later additions. Uh, There's a beautiful beach little cottage, Uh, there's a carriage house where um, it's really interesting it doesn't have it now but it used to have a a giant turnstile so when the carriage came in, it would go on the turnstile and then be able to be moved um, to allow more, um, more vehicles and and to free up more space in there so there are a number of um, um, buildings on the property.
1: And so today, uh, earlier in the show, we were talking about baking powder. Uh, this was the the former home of uh, William Ziegler, um, who uh, made a lot of money. Uh, and uh, I'm, g- I'm gathering from your description, he invested some of that money onto the island um, uh, in the baking powder business. Uh, going forward, I guess you know what what's the what's Darian planning to do here with uh, the land now that it's been purchased?
0: You know, go, go, Patrick, going back to um, William Ziegler, he, you know that I really appreciated. I was listening in on Linda's. Um, your discussion with linda and i learned a lot so i'm i'm hoping to be able to speak with her and i'm looking forward to reading her book and i'm hoping thank you (laughs) linda if you want to share that spice cookie recipe that you didn't need to adjust very interested (laughs) in that okay Um, and also those stables were built because for polo he built polo
2: fields there
0: yes yes um the zieglers um were um, very interested in um, in horses and uh, William Ziegler was actually a Olympic gold medalist in in um, horseback riding, and um, he formed the equestrian team. and. William Ziegler also was very ecologically oriented, and he was actually uh, um, founded the Norwalk Maritime Museum as well. So, but Patrick, what was your question? You asked me what we're going to. Yeah. Do so, up?
1: what are the plans with the land? Are Are you thinking conservation? Are you thinking housing? Are you thinking a mix? What's uh, What's sort of the thought at this point?
0: You know, when we looked at the property, one of the things we did is we we had an appraisal done, and it was based on. Um, Um, They use the best use basis, which is just um, something that um, appraisers have to choose which model they use. And they modeled it after, um, you know, they looked at 25 homes and what that would look like out there. So so our our goal is to to acquire open space. And that's why we took a look at this. We looked at it really hard because it was a very expensive project. And right now we formed a Great Island advisory committee. We're we're just getting going. They've um, they've had um, just a few meetings. It was formed in July, but that's the committee that will take a take a look first. At you know, I'm thinking of it as phase one. What do we do to help our residents actually get on the island um, in a safe and comfortable way? And then the phase two that's phase one. The phase two will be looking at what we want to do there longer term. I do think that that will require. Um, and deserve a, a lot of input um, from our community. And um, I, I think this is a, you know, this part of it will be a, a much longer process. The initial, this phase one, I see, um, I think one of the earlier things we can do. There's a mile and a half of beautiful coastline. I think um, walking trails will be one of the first things we, we we try to work on for our for our residents to actually get out and enjoy the island. And that way, once you're on there, once you're on the island, you get an idea of what you what your what your vision is, because this is a community asset. And so we want to make it available and attractive for, um you know, for everyone. So that's where we'll, that's where we're looking at getting some of the ideas for what to do longer term, but shorter term, you know, walking trails are, um, and, you know, something we'll focus on early.
1: Uh, That's Darian for Selectman, Monica McNally. Monica, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show today and uh, sharing your time with us.
0: Absolutely. Thank you.
1: Uh, Linda Civitello, I believe you're, you're still on the line. Um, uh, Linda, I yep. guess uh, any any parting thoughts on uh, baking powder before we go here again? This is uh, something you know that is so invisible to us today, but really did just create a, a true scientific revolution and bring a lot of money into Darien, apparently. Um, so any, any final thoughts you want to leave uh, with us today? We have about 30 well, seconds left.
2: Oh, um, yeah. One of the main uses of baking powder is that it can raise maize. Corn is gluten free. So yeast cannot do anything with that. And corn was the main grain, was the staple in colonial America. So cornbread is another absolutely American invention and not possible without baking powder and certainly baking soda.
1: Uh, Linda Civitello is a food historian, the author of Baking Powder Wars, The Cutthroat Food Fight That Revolutionized Cooking. Uh, Linda, it's a fantastic book. There's so many great details in there. Uh, Thanks again for coming on today and sharing your time with us.
2: It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Uh,
1: Thanks for listening here today to uh, Where We Live. I'm Patrick Scahill. Uh, Today's show was produced by uh, Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thanks so much for listening.